Get Growing with New Zealand Gardener is brought to you with support from Bunnings Warehouse. Hi there, I'm Jo McCarroll. I edit New Zealand Gardener magazine. And thanks so much for listening to the very first episode of our gardening podcast, Get Growing with New Zealand Gardener. We're going to be talking about what to do in the garden now. We're going to be talking about reasons we love gardening. And we're going to be talking to some amazing gardeners all around New Zealand. And with me is Rachel Clare. Hi. Rachel edits New Zealand Gardener's e-zine. Get growing. Tell me about your garden, Rachel. Well, I live in Henderson, west side for life. And I have quite a small garden, or like a half section, and in it I have a potager, which sounds very fancy, which is six raised beds in which I grow edibles. And I also grow the fruit trees I can fit, and I also grow lots and lots of flowers because I'm crazy about flowers, particularly pink ones. And I have beehives, and I have some wild boys, which are my children. A very fertile soil, obviously. Um, Well, look, my garden is in Mount Albert. I also have edible crops. I love growing edibles. And I've got maybe 17 fruit trees. I think I've lost track. Wow. Do you bottle them? I do. I do a lot of pickling, a lot of preserving. Um, And I do a lot of biodiversity planting. I really like um, bringing in the bees and the pollinators and seeing those beneficial insects in my garden. I like to hear that. (laughs) So Rachel and I are going to be talking about what to do in the garden because there is so much to do in the garden right now. Rachel, what are you planting this weekend? Well, I am putting in more strawberries because you need about six plants per person if you want to get more than a smattering of strawberries. One strawberry plant does not a summer make. Now with strawberries, you need to make sure that you provide a really good mulch around them so the fruit doesn't sit there rotting on the wet soil. And when you plant them, you also want to dig in compost and sheet pellets and provide them with a really rich, well-draining soil. Strawberries need regular watering if you want big, juicy berries. Then as soon as they show the first bit of red on their cheeks, you want to hold off on the watering because then you don't want them to be too mushy. What are you growing? Well, I might plant some more potatoes. Um, if you're wanting to plant potatoes, you want them to be in trenches that are about maybe 20 centimetres deep and space them about 40 centimetres apart. Um, if you've not grown potatoes before, it's a good idea to start with certified seed spuds, even though the ones at the bottom of your pantry seem to show so much promise by sending off all these sprouts. Um, it, that is just one sure way to introduce disease. You'll get a better yield and it'll be disease-free if you use a certified seed spud. So you plant them, you pile the soil on top and mounds it up maybe 10-15 centimetres. If you don't have a lot of space, you can just grow maybe one in a bucket, maybe one or two buckets, depending on how much space you have. What kind of potatoes do you like growing? I'm growing a lot of sorts. Um, I've put in some early potatoes um, for Christmas and some main crop spuds. Um, I'm growing Jersey Benny, the setter. I love Jersey Bennies. I'm growing some Māori potatoes this year too, some little purple ones. Oh, nice. They're yeah. just they're hard to find in the soil when you go to dig them up. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm looking forward to seeing how they turn out. I'm going to grow beans. And I was inspired by the article in the latest issue of New Zealand Gardener where Linda Hallinan worked out the top 10 climbing beans and dwarf beans. Beans are a fantastic crop because you can keep picking and picking and picking off your beans. You'll have more than you need, even if you've just got a couple of plants for your family. Beans, beans, beans. 
months. Now, they need soil temperatures above 17 degrees to grow well, so you can wait till December if it's still cold where you live. And if you grow scarlet runners, which are perennials and come back every year, you'll know it's warm enough to plant them because they'll start popping up out of the soil and you know you can plant your other ones. So that's an easy way to work out whether it's warm enough to plant them. Now, they won't thrive in tired, dried-up soil. So like anything, we're always going on about compost, aren't we, Joe? But um, you need to enrich it first with compost and maybe a slow-release fertiliser. Now, do you sow beans direct or do you put in punnets? I usually sow them direct. It's much cheaper to sow your crops direct. Um, If you don't have much space, though, a a packet of bean seed will be hundreds of seeds, Um, whereas if you've only got a little bit of space in your garden, you might only want six plants. Um, And if you've got a problem with slugs and snails, um, sowing direct, you might end up with the slugs and snails eating all your tender baby seedlings. Mm, so that in that case, punnets are better. It's also a great time to sow or plant lettuce. Um, we always think of lettuce as a summer crop, Rachel, but of course um, it hates the hot weather, ironically. It goes all bitter. It goes bitter <laughs> if it gets water deprived and it'll bolt to seed if you let it dry out. Um, but you can plant seedlings now or you can sow direct if you want to grow a whole lot more lettuce. Um, if you're sowing direct, be aware that lettuce Lettuce seed needs light to germinate, so you don't want to bury that seed too deeply. Just scatter the tiny seed on the surface of the soil and only barely cover. My favourite variety this year has been Drunken Woman. Drunken Woman fringed hair. That is a great lettuce. It's so pretty and it's kind of green in the middle and then it's got the nice kind of purple outline and it's all frilly. It is. It's a beautiful lettuce, but some of those red lettuces are not out of place in the ornamental garden. No. I love lettuce, and I grow um, daffodils in between mine, so it creates this really lovely kind of edible floral display. But what neither of us have mentioned, which I'm sure we'll both be doing, is planting tomatoes. So I'm going to do the first of my masterclasses, everything you need to know about planting tomatoes. Oh, I love a masterclass. Tomatoes are easily the most popular edible crop for New Zealand home gardeners. And of course, Labor Weekend is the traditional time that you plant your tomato seedlings outside. Although, as I say every year, if you live in an especially cold or inland region where the nights are still cold or the soil feels cold to the touch, you're better off waiting and planting in a few weeks. Uh, Prof Walker, who was the soil scientist on Maggie's Garden Show, he always used to recommend the bare bum test. You drop your trousers and you sit with your bare bottom on the soil where you plan to plant. And if it is too cold to sit comfortably, it's too cold for your tomatoes. So you might give that a go if you're not sure and your garden is suitably private or maybe your neighbours are away. Uh, Now, tomatoes are heat lovers. They need a spot with six or seven hours of sun a day, and they also need good airflow. A lot of the problems that you might have later in the season are fungal in nature. So having good air circulation can delay those or hopefully stop them occurring. Ideally, a week or so before you plant, you've dug through sheet pellets and compost and a tomato-specific fertiliser because this crop does love a rich soil. If you're growing tomatoes in pots, I'd add a handful of water storage crystals too. Um, If your potting mix doesn't already contain them, that is, because many of the premium ones have them in there already. Um, And that's a good idea because one of the things that really does cause problems with tomatoes is irregular watering. That's not not watering at all, but it's flooding them one day, forgetting about them for a 
week or so, feeling really guilty, flooding them again, um, that's going to cause lots of problems, including those black sunken patches at the non-stem end, which is called blossom end rot. Tomatoes get bigger than you think. So in my garden, I space my plants maybe 60, 75 centimetres apart, and I leave up to a metre or 1.5 metres between the rows. That's more space than some gardeners might allow, but I'm growing my tomatoes in humid Auckland, so I have to be really careful to create that airflow that they need. If you're growing standard vine tomatoes, um, they need to be staked and the stakes need to be two metres tall because plants really do get that tall. So hammer your stakes in first and then dig a hole at the base, maybe a hand width away, that's about twice the size of the root ball of the seedling that you're putting in. Um, And then plant your plant, heal it in and tie the main stem to the stake with something that's soft and flexible enough not to strangle that stem as the plant grows. Our masterclasses will help you grow something epic with Bunnings Warehouse. It's almost kumara planting season, so today we're going to talk to Widamu Puki, who was instrumental in the establishment of Te Parapara, the traditional Māori gardens at Hamilton Gardens. Kia ora, Widamu. Can you tell us a little bit about Te Parapara and tell us what traditional edible crops you grow there? The Parapara... Uh, is named after a old-time uh, par that was fortified, and um, its traditional history was centered around the establishment of, of cultivations that were there originally, and occupied by Ngati Hanui, which was a sub-tribal Ngati Waiiri and Ngati Kaura. Actually, the Parapara was also the name of a cultivation that existed at Aotearoa. It's a very old name. But also the types of food crops we do grow inside to the, the garden itself. Uh, the varieties of kumara are believed to be the old pre-European variety that supposedly came on the voyaging canoes from ancient Polynesia. I understand that the um, varieties we buy in the supermarket are the ones that American whalers brought, is that right? And they're much larger. Yes, uh, well from Hawaii actually, the ones that the um, commercial growers use. The whaler variety known as pokina are small ones. They kind of have a resemblance to pumpkin. That's hence the translation of it, pokina. Mm. Do they taste like yep. pumpkin at all or like kumara? Yeah, the old type of kumara is sweeter to me. And there's like a um, there's a special dish you can make, isn't there, that is like a, was a traditional sweet, is that right? Yeah, it was called kumara kao. Often the oversized kumara and the smaller ones were treated to a dehydration process where the other skins were scraped off very carefully, wrapped in the leaves, uh, rodeco leaves, and steamed in a hangi, in a umu, I should say, for a period of three, three days, and then carefully unwrapped and dried in the sun. And actually those were prepared for the 28th Māori Battalion during the Second World War and sent over to them by the tons, generally. They, they were quite a an energy food uh, used by the war parties in times of war and in pre-European times, but they certainly a favourite food amongst the Māori battalion men. Yeah, it must have been so special for them to receive that parcel. Yes, yes it was. So my great-grandparents and my grandparents in Tikitiki uh, on the East Cape there, Tikitiki and Ruatoria, were uh, preparing kumara kao. Um, I still know how to do it. And um, storing large kumara that had uh, problems because uh, the moisture content uh, could potentially rot the other kumara in storage. And that's the reason why the other size kumara we, we treat it that way. 
Now, you plant following the Maramataka, the Māori lunar calendar. Can you just explain what the Maramataka is for people who won't know? The Maramataka is the uh, traditional calendar that uh, govern our customs around gathering uh, food and planting and fishing. That we were able to read the weather. It guided our day-to-day life. My um, grandparents were able to detect from miles away the sound and change of insects in the forest by someone coming through. So you grew up using the Maramataka, and that's the way you've gardened your whole life, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and there's customs too. Like, um, there are whānau that go into the forest that uh, like, uh, I never go into because they are the kaitiaki for those areas. The and they, they live by the Maramataka as well. Um, and those who live out on the coastal areas, they all have their own individual calendar or maramataka. So you'll be planting the kumara at Hamilton Gardens soon, won't you? So where in the moon cycle would you do that? Oh, we just start on probably about two or three nights uh, past the uh, the new moon. I usually just go by the how the kind of weather kind of feels as well. Yeah, so if it was raining, would you plant? Well, generally, no. Rain is often seen as a very toppy thing. Right. Why is that? Oh, well, um, the rain itself is, is just a cleansing thing. Are there any rituals you follow when you're, before you plant? Uh, yeah, yes, I, we do the, I do the karakia. My auntie, she's the senior kuia of the, the hapu. It's always been planted by the woman. Why were women chosen to do the planting? Because uh, Whakaoterangi was the kaitiaki, or the, the, who looked after the kumara that came on board the canoes. She was actually the wife of Hoturoa, the captain of the Tainuiwaka. The food represents uh, life. It represents that symbolic aspect of life itself. Without food, people don't live. And you know, women bring life to this world as well. I'm going to tell my partner that next time he decides he wants to plant something because I like having all the control in the garden. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Wiramu. It's been wonderful talking to you and I wish you a really great growing season. Oh, I hope so too. Kaki te ano. So one of the things we want to do with this podcast is answer your questions because we get heaps of questions from readers. So I've got a question here from Sheila Dawkins. She wants to know how to stop a cat digging up everything she has planted and pooing over the garden. Oh, Rachel, if I had a dollar for every reader who's asked me how to keep cats out of the garden, we'd be making this podcast at my beach house. It's a perennial issue. It comes up again and again because, of course, it is a problem. We've had a lot of techniques suggested by readers over the years. I know readers have used old hanging baskets over seedlings to stop the cats from digging them up or even covered any bare soil with maybe netting or chicken wire because bare soil is catnip to cats. Yeah, and they love it if it's dry. And I've got in my six raised beds, my cat just, she loves them and treats them like um, it's a toilet for every single day of the week. So what I did was I just got lots of sticks and I put string around them and created a barrier. But something else you can do is that people swear by putting things like pepper around or sprinkling coffee grounds or things that cats might not like the smell of. I have tried that at my place. I mean, Dusty Springfield is just too classy. 
to use the garden as a toilet. Uh, but other cats do not have her incredible sense of style and uh, class. Um, so you can use pepper or um, some sort of chilli powder or ground up chilies. Um, but one thing is it does wash off. It's not rain fast, so you have to reapply. The other thing you can do, and I do this myself, is keep a water pistol by the back door mm. and spray any cats that aren't yours that you see. I'm not actually entirely sure this works, but it really does help relieve your feelings. Yeah, yeah. And one really cool tip I read was to actually sprinkle some cat biscuits around the place that they're going to the toilet because cats won't foul where they like to eat. Hmm, not so sure about that, Rachel. Not sure I'd believe it. But people go to incredible lengths. I've absolutely heard of readers putting up tiny electric fences. Yeah, and you can actually buy special repellents from hardware stores as well. Well, I'm not sure if any of those tips will help you. Maybe. Um, but it's definitely, if you find something that is a fail-safe solution, let us know because we will try and get it onto the market. And if you've got a question you'd like us to answer, email it to us at mailbox at nzgardener.co.nz. The other day I heard an American celebrity describing New Zealanders like Sweden, California and Vancouver rolled into one. We've got such a varied geographical landscape and climate that it does mean we've got a wide range of growing conditions in New Zealand. So as part of our podcast series, we're going to talk to gardeners from all over the country to find out what their gardens are like and what they can grow in their climates. And to start off with, we're going to talk to Jane Falconer, who has been gardening from Clackenburn Station in the Maniatoto, Central Otago, for 40 years. Kia ora, Jane. Hello, Rachel. Now, people talk about extreme sports, particularly down where you live, but you do extreme gardening. Now, you wrote in New Zealand Gardener magazine about having to break the ice in the donkey's trough with a sledgehammer. So I think that's, that's pretty extreme. So tell us about the extreme climatic conditions you live in and garden in. Rachel, I always start with the... Um, factors that make this a extreme location to garden with. Our altitude is 1,600 feet. Our rainfall is 12 to 14 inches, although we now have irrigation to help with that. Our temperatures in summer can range from 35 plus and in winter to minus 25. So when you put that together, it makes a short growing season and it does make a challenging um, place to garden. But I love it. So what grows well? What grows well at Clackenburn Station? I think all of Central Otago will agree with me that we grow roses and irises very well. We grow peonies magnificently well. I'm jealous. places further north can't. And we all have good spring gardens. We all can grow bulbs and beautiful blossom. Paint a picture with words for us of your garden. At the moment. Yes, at the moment. At the moment, it's beautiful. We will be probably a month behind Auckland. So our spring gardens are still looking lovely. It's all about bulbs, blossoms and birds at the moment. 
um, blossoms with thousands of daffodils. Other bulbs that grow well here include the bluebells later on. It just goes on from there. And you can grow cold climate bulbs like the beautiful checkerboard fritillarias, which I would love to be able to grow, but we can't. It's too hot. Beautiful fritillarias. And I also grow the giant fritillaria imperialis. It comes in yellow and orange. And a couple of weeks ago, I was tickled pink because I won um, champion bloom in a little local spring show with my large fritillaria. I was thrilled to pieces. Congratulations. And um, you can also grow peonies, which we cannot grow up here. I did meet a gardener up here who was trying to grow them by um, putting ice on top of their plants every day. I don't think that cuts the mustard. <laughs> it's quite dedicated. I believe that they need 90 days of cold temperatures. What are your favourite colours? I still love the good old-fashioned dark red, but I do think these lovely corals are just beautiful and they change colour as they progress. They can start a dark, dark pink and they can come into a soft, peachy, lemony colour. They are beautiful. Do you have a glass house? Do you grow frost tender crops in a glass house? I have a glass house, yes, and in my glass house I grow tomatoes, and which surprises our North Island visitors, why in a glass house you can't guarantee them outside. We really only have two months in the year that we can more or less guarantee no frost, and that is January and February. So we, I grow them in a glass house and in there I also grow a black Hamburg grape which was planted by my mother-in-law in 1960 and it wouldn't grow outside either. Oh right, so, you grow, so that grows in the glass house as well? It does. Thank you so much for talking to us, Jane. You've painted a wonderful picture of what it's like gardening in your extreme conditions. And I'd love to come and visit one day and look at your peonies and fritillaria. Well, you're very welcome, Rachel. It's been lovely to talk to you too. And skate on your pond too. Okay. Thanks, Jane. Bye. Wherever your garden grows, grow something with Bunnings. Now, Rachel, I've been doing some research into what guarantees a podcast success and worldwide attention. And a unifying feature does seem to be a mysterious death. Oh, we always need a gruesome murder. Exactly. And luckily, in my garden, plants die under mysterious circumstances all the time. Mysterious? Sometimes. (laughs) Um, So I actually think we can boast that this podcast will have more mysterious deaths than any other podcast. We could have one or two a week. And we gar- it's guaranteed to be a hit because everyone likes a murder. So I thought we could start with What's Killing My Lemon Tree. 
Because that is a question that comes up so often. What is wrong with my lemon tree? Because, of course, lemon trees are just divas. They need to be in that absolute Goldilocks zone. Just enough water, not too little, not too much. Just enough fertiliser, not too little, not too much. And so many of the problems they have have the same symptoms. They're prima donnas. They're absolute prima donnas. So um, if you overwater a lemon tree, um, that can cause problems with nutrient uptake. If you underwater a lemon tree, that can cause problems with blossom drop and fruit drop. If it's short of iron, that can cause the leaves to show up with yellow uh, veins and the new leaves to be pale yellow or pale green. And if it's short of nitrogen, that'll also cause a a yellowing of the leaves. So my advice is always just to treat your lemons really well. So my tip for lemons is to lavish them with love and care. Uh, Make sure they're getting enough water, mulch around the trees, leaving a gap directly around the trunk, and give them a a recommended dose of citrus-specific fertiliser roughly every six weeks between September and March. So what about peeing on lemon trees? Everyone loves to talk about how Bert Munro did that, and we get so many emails about it. Well, Rachel, New Zealand Gardener did some amazing investigative journalism into this issue, and I can reveal exclusively on this podcast that Bert Munro did not pee on his lemon tree. What? I know. In fact, that detail was added to the film The World's Fastest Indian by the film director Roger Donaldson, whose father used to do it in Rotorua. Can lemon trees even grow in Invercargill anyway? I'd never thought about it. They'd be absolutely marginal. But anyway, I tracked down Bert Munro's neighbour. Well, on when... the case, McCarroll. <laughs> so is it a good idea or not? I mean, my kids like doing that, but not me, personally. People like doing it, and by people, I mean men. Well, it's not actually the best idea. Our human urine is mainly water, and it does contain nitrogen and potassium and phosphorus, which are, in fact, the essential elements plants need to grow. Um, plus, our digestive system actually breaks them down into a form that makes it easier for the plants to take up. Um, I know I read a, a permaculturalist who said that uh, the urine from a family of four could produce the equivalent to a 50 kilo bag of MPK fertilizer every single year. But urine applied undiluted, it causes symptoms of nutrient burn. And remember, citrus has shallow and delicate roots. So if you want to use urine on your lemon tree, I would suggest peeing in a container, diluting it and applying it in a diluted form and not doing it too often. I just think everyone should stick to the toilet. Hey, thanks so much for joining Rachel and me for the very first episode of Get Growing with New Zealand Gardener. Do join us again next week. We'll be back in the garden telling you what to sow and grow right now. We'll be talking to more gardeners from around the country and answering more of your questions. See you next week. 